with this eighth chapter of Romans, we come to a chapter that has been called either the greatest or one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. Now, the Swiss commentator Godet pointed out that chapter 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Take a look at that for a moment. If you look at the first verse of Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then go over to the 38th verse, the last two verses of this chapter. He says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And somebody's added, in between no condemnation and no separation, there's no defeat. If you struggle with discouragement or depression, read Romans 8. If you struggle with guilt, read Romans 8. If you struggle with sin, read Romans 8. If you don't know how to pray, read Romans 8. If you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, read Romans 8. The German pietist Philip Spainer said that if the Bible were a ring, the Bible were a ring, then Romans would be its precious stone. Chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Did you get that? If the Bible were a ring, Romans 8 would be the precious stone, or Romans, yeah, I still can't get it. Romans would be the precious stone, and Romans 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Because there's a notable shift from the darkness and the seeming hopelessness of Romans chapter 7 to the brilliant light of Romans 8. In Romans chapter 7, Paul's been preoccupied with the place of the law in the life of the believer and the futility of trying to live by the law. In Romans chapter 8, his preoccupation is with the Holy Spirit, work, walking according to the Spirit. In chapter 7, the word law and its synonyms were mentioned 31 times, 31 times, but the Holy Spirit was only mentioned once in Romans 7, whereas in the first 27 verses of chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is referred to 19 times by name. Now, the essential contrast which Paul points out is between the weakness of the law and the power of the Spirit. And if we were to put it in practical terms, which way are you going to live? Are you going to operate and walk in the flesh, dominated, controlled by law, which leads to death? Or are you going to walk according to the Spirit of God, whereby you are putting to death the deeds of the body and you will live? Because here's the main deal. As long as we live on this earth, as long as we live in these bodies of flesh, even though we have been freed from sin, that is, we're no longer slaves to sin, nevertheless, the principle or the laws of sin and death still seek to control us. And they still wage war against us. Now look back at verse 22 of the seventh chapter of Romans for a minute. Romans chapter 7, the 22nd verse where Paul describes the struggle that we all have, the struggle, he describes it as a, a war. He says, verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now think of it this way. 
We have an illustration, something that illustrates this from the Second World War about what it means to live in the Spirit of God while we're in this world. In World War II, D-Day, the invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944, signified the decisive intervention of the Allied forces. And that took place a year before VE Day. VE is Victory in Europe Day, which is in 1945. And in between D-Day and VE Day, the battles remained fierce and bloody, even though the decisive act had already taken place. Now, it's the same way in what we call redemption history. The D-Day of redemption, the decisive act against sin, what took place on Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and in him giving his Holy Spirit to us. God acted decisively against the powers of sin, Satan, and death, which tyrannized and enslaved people. Yet the skirmishes... And the battles with sin, as well with Satan and death, continue to be severe, right? They are real. They are painful. But they take place now in a whole different context from any struggle against sin that marked the old life in Adam from which the Holy Spirit was absent. Now, as Christians, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we engage in the conflict, but we engage in the conflict from the standpoint of deliverance. Deliverance, as Paul has said here, for like from a prisoner of war camp where we are held prisoner. We've been, we've been delivered. The decisive victory over the dominion of sin is a present reality in the Holy Spirit. The final victory is assured, right? But there's still a bloodletting. And the whole armor of God must be worn. V-Day, Victory Day is still to come. And we can think about this in terms of July 4th, 1776. We see a similar illustration. On July 4, 1776, the Continental Congress ratified the Declaration of Independence. Now, a lot of people don't realize that two days before, on July 2, 1776, the actual legal separation took place. The decisive act was made by unanimous vote with one abstention to adopt the Declaration of Independence. At that point, Americans were free. The colonies were free from the tyranny of King George III. Now, a day after July 2nd, when it actually had been adopted, John Adams wrote to his wife, Abigail, about the decisive act of liberty that had taken place the day before. So he said, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I'm <laughs> we got it off by two days, but listen to what he says about it. He says, I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to Almighty God. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations. You know what illuminations are? Fireworks. From one end of the continent to the other, from this time forward evermore. Well, he missed the actual celebration by, by two days, but he didn't miss the significance. America was free. Americans were free. 
But like World War II, the day of deliverance, of freedom, the legal separation of July 2nd, 1776, was followed by years of war, suffering, disease, bloodletting, as our founding fathers pledged their what? Their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. So as believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of God, we live in that in-between time between Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father and his coming again. Or we go to be with him, whichever, whatever comes first. We live in that in-between time. And Romans chapter 8 shows us how we are to live and to walk and do battle and experience victory and grow in holiness, all according to the Holy Spirit as we live in Christ's victory now. So it's fitting that in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, we find the believer's declaration of independence, our freedom in Christ. And Paul wants us to know exactly where we stand in our relationship to Christ and exactly where we stand in our relationship to sin and death. So please look at Romans chapter 8, the first verse again. The first verse of this important eighth chapter of Romans. Paul says, excuse <coughs> me, <coughs> Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the first verse sets forth here one of the most important truths of the Christian faith. And we see that opening word, therefore. Whenever we see the word, therefore, we're asked, what, what is there, therefore, therefore? And it's what Paul has already said in this letter. It seems to go back to that entire argument of justification by faith that has dominated this letter since chapter 3, verse 21. The just shall live by faith and everything after that. You know, based on everything that Paul has written about sin and death and the law and justification by faith, Paul now declares, therefore, here are the results. And there's a more definite connection. You don't need to turn to it, but the word translated condemnation also occurs in Romans chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And there Paul argued that just as condemnation came to the entire human race through Adam's sin, so God's free gift of justification came to us through Jesus Christ. Just as we were under condemnation in Adam, so now we are in Christ justified by his grace. So therefore, goes back to sum up the great truth of the gospel of justification. By faith alone, through God's grace alone, in Christ alone, that Paul has laid out earlier in this letter. In the, in the Greek language, it's emphatic. No condemnation. Not any. Not one. And condemnation here is both a legal and a forensic term that includes both the sentence... You are guilty in the execution of that sentence. You are condemned to, to die. That is, in Adam, we all stand before God as guilty and condemned to eternal punishment. In Adam, we're on death row, awaiting the execution of the guilty verdict that has been passed. If we died in that condition, we'd pass into eternal separation from God, the second death. That's the condemnation, the sentence, and the execution of that sentence. But Paul is showing us 
But since Christ bore the punishment that we deserved, in him we are set free, in that we stand justified and acquitted of all the charges. They're all dismissed. The just penalty incurred by the sins of the human race have been removed for all those who are in Christ Jesus and who have received his forgiveness. So Paul begins chapter 8 with two immediate concerns. And the first is to describe Christ's work in terms of net results. What were the net results? No condemnation. No condemnation because of the deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who once only knew despair, there's now no condemnation. The future judgment and condemnation by God, which we all so richly deserved, has been put into our past and laid upon Jesus Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, did you realize this? You will never stand before God and have to make an account for your sin. Never. And if you bring it up, God's going to say, oh, no, that, that was all covered. That was way back on Christ. God's not going to bring it up. Why should you bring it up? Never. God will never bring it up. You know, and the Lord Jesus said it this way in John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. As a believer has received Jesus Christ, your sin has already been judged at the cross of Christ. You will one day stand before God, but there's not going to be any condemnation. No, none, not at all. That, that was Paul's first concern, that we know the net results. And Paul's second concern is we know that now we are set free. We are set free. As believers in Christ, we are set free from the law of sin and death. We are set free from what he calls laws here, under which we were enslaved, we were forced to serve. These were principles of law and sin of death. And he says that in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's the Christian's Independence Day. All of our sins were put on Christ so that we might be set free from the former laws, the former principles that once enslaved us, those former laws of sin and death. Now, there's something we need to understand here by what Paul means by laws or law at this point in the text. Because in two verses, Paul uses the word law in two different in ways. In verse 2, when he talks about the law of sin and death, he's not talking about God's law. The Old Testament law, the, the Torah, the law of God. But in the next verse, in verse 3, Paul talks about the law of God. Now, if you use the New American Standard Bible, and some of the other translations do this, you'll notice in verse 3 that the word law is capitalized. Capital L, uppercase L. Incidentally, I discovered for the first time where they got capital, uppercase and lowercase. Jan and I were watching this thing about people buying homes in Europe, and they, they went to one of the Gutenberg presses, one of the early presses, where they have all the letters. They made them out of steel, and, and they'd put them in these little bins in the case. And the uppercase letters are the ones, the capital letters, they don't use that often, so they put them in the upper part of the case. 
the lowercase letters they put in the, the lowercase. That's why we call them uppercase and lowercase letters. And so here, law in verse 3 is capital L, the law. What the law could not do, what the Torah could not do. Now in verse 2, when Paul talks about the law, little l, small l, lowercase l of the Spirit and the law of sin and death, he's not talking about the Torah, the law of God. Rather, he's talking about laws in the sense of principles on which a thing works. For example, we have what's called the law of gravity. You can try to beat that law or try to prove it's not work. it doesn't work, but if you jump out of a tree, what? You're going to fall to the ground. You drop a ball and it falls to the earth every time. Laws of nature are principles by which the natural phenomena of this world operate. Dogs do not give birth to cats, right? Unless you read it on Facebook, and then you might wonder about that. I was at a meeting this past week where on a certain project, it seemed like one thing was going wrong after another, and we are on a conference call to an engineer in Salt Lake City, and I said to the engineer, I said, you know, I hope that Murphy's Law has pretty much run its course <laughs> on this project. Everybody knows Murphy's Laws, that if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong, and at the worst possible moment, right? I want to find this guy named Murphy and tell him what I think about, about his law. But in chapter, verse 2, Paul introduces an unusual expression. He calls it the law of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit. Why is there no condemnation? Because the law of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that is life in Christ, has set you free from the law of sin which leads to death. And so Paul is contrasting two different kinds of laws or two different kinds of principles here. One law is the power of sin that inevitably results in death. Romans said the wages of sin is death. That's not so much Old Testament law, even though the Old Testament talks about it. That's just the way things work. It's a principle by which life operates. If you sin, you die. Ezekiel said that in chapter 18, verse 20. In the King James Version, he said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's just the way it is. That's a law. That's a principle by how things work. A, a little l. You know, the book of Proverbs is full of these. You know, pride goes before destruction. And a, a, a haughty spirit will stumble. You know, it's just the way life works. Now, the law of the Spirit says that only by living in union with Jesus Christ can believers break the power of sin and death in their lives. The new law, the law of the Spirit, is the principle on which the Holy Spirit now works in our lives, a principle that operates in power. And here Paul characterizes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of life. He's a life-giving Spirit. All through the New Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Spirit of God, is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. When we receive Jesus Christ, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and lives on the inside of us. He comes and lives inside of us. He indwells us. And Paul will go on to say in the book of Romans that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you are none of His. 
In other words, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even saved because everybody who is saved is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised to pour out his Spirit and he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The presence of the Holy Spirit means the defeat of the power of sin. The law of the Spirit is the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit ruling as law, as it were, within our hearts. Paul is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes into a person, that person is liberated from bondage to evil and finds a new power within. It's a power that causes the defeat of sin and leads the liberated person into ways of goodness and love and, and holiness. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to overcome sin in our daily lives. Why? Because sin still tries to hold us down. That's the battle. But the life that comes from the indwelling Spirit of God gives us the power to soar above sin and the result of sin, death. And so it's the Spirit of God who gives us victory. And that Spirit is the possession of every true child of God and so what Paul is showing us here that we lose the battle when we try to live the Christian life apart from the empowering presence of the Spirit of God. We lose the battle when we engage the enemy without the resources supplied by the Holy Spirit. God never intended us to go it on our own, ever. Didn't Jesus say that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think I probably tell you guys that probably 10, 20 times a year, it seems, you know, because that's so, so important. And so all those difficulties of Romans chapter 7, where the man cries out, for the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. I do, I am doing the very thing I do not want. Oh, wretched man that I am. All of those difficulties, to use a play on words, are self-imposed. Self-imposed, because it's all about I. It's all about me. It's all about the, the natural outcome of trying to do it ourselves and in our own strength and our own resources, going it on our own and failing to appropriate the Spirit of God that is within us. When we fail to walk according to the Spirit, we carry out the deeds of the flesh. Every time. Every time. And so the victory of Romans 8 results from living in vital union with Jesus Christ. And the victories of Romans 8 is sustained and empowered by the Spirit of God. So in verse 3 of Romans 8, Paul turns from the failure and weakness of the law, capital L, or turns to, now he's going to talk about the capital L, the law of God, the Torah. Verse 3 of Romans 8. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Now I want to draw out a couple of, of wonders from this statement, God condemns sin in the flesh. And I, I've adapted these a little bit from, from Pastor John Piper. And I want you to notice two wonderful things about what this statement says that God condemns sin in the flesh. First of all, notice that something is condemned. In verse 1, there was no condemnation 
For what? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, something is condemned. What? Sin has been condemned, but I want to add, not merely shown to be condemnable. <laughs> what do you mean by that, Pastor? There's a difference between being condemned and condemnable. When Paul writes, God condemned sin in the flesh, it does not mean that he criticized and called sin condemnable. You know, every time there's a terrorist act, the politicians condemn it, don't they? And then they'll even say, I condemned it in the strongest possible terms. That is condemned. So, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to stop the terrorist? How are you going to bring them to justice and sentence them and execute them for what they have done? Making it condemnable does nothing, right? What does it do? It's a condemnable act. So, you know, and this is what the law does, and it does it quite well. We could say the law criticized sin and called it condemnable. The law says, for example, you shall not covet. And the law pronounces punishments on the lawbreakers. So the law clearly condemned sin in this sense. But Romans 8.3 says, what the law could not do, bring them to justice, execute them, carry out the sentence. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So God did something more than merely criticize sin and call it condemnable. What then does Paul mean when he says God condemned sin in the flesh? It means that in Jesus' flesh, in his body, in his suffering, in his dying on the cross, God executed a final sentence of condemnation on the sin of everyone who is in Christ. In other words, God condemns sin means that God found sin guilty, he sentenced sin, and he finally punished sin and carried out the penalty of the suffering in the death of his son. That's the first thing about this statement, God condemned sin. In the death of Christ, sin was not merely shown to be condemnable. It was condemned, and sin received its full sentence and just sentence and penalty for all who are in Christ Jesus. And secondly, our sin, your sin, my sin, our sin, was condemned in the suffering and the death of Christ, since he had no sin to condemn. Now here's the second wonderful thing about this statement, God condemns sin. There was no sin in Jesus Christ to condemn, right? Paul says it here indirectly, and it says, he says it directly elsewhere. Here he says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 in the middle of the verse, beginning with sending, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Notice that word likeness. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Why was it in the likeness of sinful flesh? Because flesh, because God, Jesus was not sinful. It was only a likeness. Jesus had no sin. His flesh was human, and it was like sinful flesh, but it was not sinful. So how could God condemn sin in his flesh when there was none to condemn? And the clearest answer to that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 
God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There it is. Paul says it as clearly as it could be said, Jesus knew no sin. Jesus never sinned. Of all the people who ever lived, Jesus is the only one who did not deserve to die. Jesus is the only person who ever lived who did not deserve to suffer, but he did die and he suffered. So the question is, whose sin was condemned when Jesus' flesh was tortured and killed? God condemns sin in the flesh of his completely innocent son. Whose sin was it? And the answer is clearly in Scripture. Just listen to these verses. Romans 4.25 Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Galatians 1.4 He gave himself for our sins. 1 Peter 2.21 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then those important words in Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The answer is that our sin was condemned in the suffering and in the death of Jesus Christ. Not his sin. He had none. Which practically means to us what? Well, let's let Paul say it the way he likes to say it in Romans. Look at verses 33 and 34 of this 8th chapter. Over at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? There's that word again. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. When the question arises, who can condemn God's elect? The elect there is just another word. Who can, re who can condemn those that God has called, brought to himself, and saved and filled with the Spirit of God? Who can condemn them? We saw there's no condemnation, so the answer there is, is nobody. And Paul says there's nobody in heaven and hell, there's nobody on earth, there's no angels nor principalities, anybody can say, nobody can condemn. Why? Why aren't, can't we be condemned? Answer, Jesus Christ is he who died. Now we know why the death of Jesus Christ takes away all my condemnation, all your condemnation. Because when he died, God was condemning sin. God was sentencing sin. He was punishing it completely and fully. And finally, for all God's elect, all who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it was my sin. 
that was being condemned and sentenced and punished fully and finally when Christ died. If my son was punished there finally and fully, I will not be punished for it again. John Piper says it this way. Brothers and sisters, there is no other cleansing agent in the universe that can clean your conscience besides this one. There is no other shield that can protect you from the white-hot wrath of God besides this shield. There is no other argument that will hold up in the final courtroom of heaven than this argument. Christ died for my sins. Christ bore my condemnation. Christ absorbed all the divine wrath that would and should have come on me. And as the hymn writer said, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And he died for me. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We give you praise that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sin. He took the condemnation that all of us as sinners deserved. Father, I pray that we will come as we study the, the eighth chapter of Romans to come to more and more understand what this means and understand what it means to walk a different kind of life. Not in the flesh, not under the laws and principles of of sin and death, but under the law of the Spirit of God. That now we are saved, and now as we do battle, as it were, and now as we face the struggles and the woes of this world and in the life we live, Father, show us what it means to have been set free. Set free once and for all from the law of sin and death that we may now fight these battles and face the struggles that we do, Father, in the Spirit of God. For in Christ, there is freedom. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.